standard issue for all women. On May the 25th, Ireland faces a momentous decision. Is the country going to allow women access to safe and legal abortions for the first time in its history? As people prepare to cast their vote in the nationwide referendum, we talk to 14 women from the fields of law, medicine, academia, politics, education, the arts and good old-fashioned campaigning about their work to repeal the 8th. In this first episode, we look at the law as it currently stands in Ireland, its repercussions for women, and we wonder, how did we get here? Abortion has been officially illegal in Ireland since 1861. But in 1983, the pro-life campaign pushed for an amendment to make it nigh on impossible for women to access an abortion in any circumstances. A referendum was held and the Eighth Amendment was passed. But what is it exactly? My name is Sinead Williams. I'm a member of Lawyers for Choice. I'm a trainee solicitor. I've been involved in pro-choice activism since 2013. So at the moment, we have... Article 40.3.3 of the Constitution, which is more commonly known as the Eighth Amendment, and it basically puts in place an absolute abortion ban in Ireland. Now, there are some very limited exceptions to that ban um, that have arisen after different court cases that have happened since the referendum to insert the Eighth Amendment in 1983. Probably the most famous of those is the X case from 1992, and that basically found that there is a limited right to abortion in Ireland where the life of the mother is at risk. But basically nothing happened after the X case until 2013 when the government actually passed legislation to implement the findings of that judgment. So as it stands at the moment, it is possible to get an abortion in Ireland where there is a risk to the life of the mother. Um, But that has to be certified um, by two doctors and where the risk to the life of the mother is from suicide it has to be certified by three doctors I think it is possible that in an emergency situation one doctor can certify it but because there's been so much confusion around the law in this area doctors are quite hesitant to actually make that judgment call and because it's specifically where there's a risk to the life as opposed to the health of the mother it can lead to cases where a patient is left to get worse and to get into a sort of life and death situation before any action can be legally taken by doctors. This doesn't sound great for women, right? But to be honest, it doesn't sound all that great for doctors either. I'm Dr Anna McHugh and I am a doctor specialising in general practice working in rural Ireland and I am a full committee member of Doctors for Choice because we all want the Eighth Amendment to be repealed. My name is Dr Agnes Johnson. I work in hospital medicine in a large teaching university hospital in Dublin and I am also a committee member of Doctors for Choice for the exact same reasons. We want to be able to provide healthcare to women in Ireland. The law poses a really difficult situations for doctors to work in in the sense that life or death situation in an emergency situation or in a woman that has an underlying illness you would have to wait for a woman to be so unwell that her life is at risk before you are allowed to intervene in that pregnancy and doctors know what the right thing to do is know what needs to be done but you have to wait until you reach that point So that's a really difficult dilemma and there's nothing in textbooks that say, oh, this is a point where your life is significantly and immediately at risk. And a lot of the time when it gets to that point, it's too late. Mm. It's like Savita Halepanavar 
and her father uh, has actually come out in support of the yes vote and he has said that he is more than happy for for us to speak about her and her memory in this campaign and you know with young people a lot of the time because you have such a a large you're healthy and you have a large kind of physiological reserve is what we say that when it comes to being very unwell you almost fall off the edge of a cliff with an older person there are earlier warning signs but with a case like Savita Halepanavar it gets to such a late stage you're very sick before it starts to become apparent and that's why even if you have this as far as is practicable or, you know, where it's an immediate threat to the life of the woman, I don't think that's good enough, personally. And if it even comes to, like, not as dramatic situations as, you know, impending death, even if, in general practice, because that's more my area, if a woman comes to you with a crisis pregnancy, your consultation is regulated with her by the law and by the Eighth Amendment. The law does not enter the consultation as much in any other situation at all. So it's not a private consultation. You just have to give this blanket information, the same information to everyone, whether their baby is anencephalic, which means that unfortunately the fetus has no head or, you know, whether it's as a result of rape. By law, you're not supposed to and cannot treat the pregnancy any differently and I just don't think that that is in line with international best practice and I don't think it's the most compassionate way to treat patients. Okay the name Savita Halapanava is going to come up a lot so here's what happened and why her case has had such an impact. The campaign against the Eighth Amendment really gathered pace following the death of 31-year-old dentist Savita Halapanava. Savita sought medical treatment in October 2012 after suffering severe back pain brought on as a result of a miscarriage. Savita and her husband Praveen requested an abortion but were denied one by University Hospital Galway as the fetus still had a heartbeat. Praveen said they were told by a consultant, this is a Catholic country. An autopsy found septicemia was the cause of Savita's death with a subsequent inquest concluding it was due to medical misadventure. None of which sounds in keeping with the Hippocratic Oath statement that you must first do no harm. Absolutely, and you are doing harm and certainly you're not helping your patient, which is what we want to be allowed to do. And I think an important point in in that is the law states and what the Eighth Amendment states is that you have to treat that pregnancy with the exact same rights as that mother. So in trying to balance that you end up in that situation where you can't offer them treatment because it would harm the pregnancy or the fetus. And doctors are petrified. Basically, in the law in Ireland, if you are complicit in an abortion, or I don't know what terminology to use really, you could face 14 years in prison like the woman could. You know, there's all these as far as it's practicable and, you know, immediate life of the woman. But everyone's petrified to touch off this with a 40-foot pole because of the Eighth Amendment. That does harm in itself. That was Anna and Agnes talking about how the Eighth Amendment puts doctors in a very tricky spot. Here they are on the hypocrisy inherent in how they are, and indeed aren't, allowed to help a woman who's decided to travel for an abortion. The information that we are allowed to provide the patients is regulated by something called the Regulation of Informations Act. Yeah, it was in 1995. Yeah. And that 
states that you can provide a woman with information about abortions, but you have to provide her with information about all of the options, which includes parenting and includes adoption. Mm -hmm. So even if a woman comes to you stating what she wants and that she knows what she wants, you have to talk about the other options. You're not allowed to make referrals to a clinic in England or in the UK, but you're allowed to provide her with the information of where she could go and contact herself. Normally, what would happen if a doctor is trying to refer a patient to another service is that you would send a letter to that service with the patient's medical history, medications, allergies, things that might be relevant, things that they themselves might not know are relevant. We are not allowed to do that in Ireland. But the hypocrisy of that is that basically 1983, they introduced Article 43.3 where they said, you know, the right of the unborn is equal to the right of life to the mother and abortion was illegal essentially. But then they later on were like granted the right to travel, the hypocrisy of the highest order because it's like, yeah, we know this is happening, that's fine. It's the same thing as contraception in Ireland. It's an Irish solution to an Irish problem, essentially. And then as Agnes correctly said, you're, you're not allowed to refer, but there is a document that is available on a website which isn't a referral letter, but it is a document with a GP logo at the bottom of it where you do fill out this pro forma if a lady is traveling so essentially you're saying oh no we're not referring and this isn't happening but it is but we're just exporting the problem but of course an irish solution to an irish problem isn't really working and it's not just doctors feeling powerless as to how they can help their patients the women themselves wind up with very little power over their own bodies yeah, I mean, the way the Eighth Amendment is interpreted sometimes by doctors, it, it means that, like, despite the fact that there is that 2013 Act that can allow for abortion in Ireland under limited circumstances, horrible cases can still emerge. So it was the case of Miss Y. After the 2013 Act was passed, she was an asylum seeker who was pregnant through rape in her home country before she came here seeking refuge. She sought an abortion because she was suicidal and even though she was legally entitled to one she was not given an abortion and had to go to court and even then because she was near the point of viability they forced her to remain pregnant until it was viable to deliver the fetus alive. We've seen cases in the media in the last year of a teenager being sectioned because she expressed the wish to want to go to England to have an abortion. Now, like she was immediately released once her mother went to the police, but it's incredible that people can even think that they're allowed to do something like that to a pregnant person. And it's because of the complete uncertainty around the Eighth Amendment and its impact in all areas of healthcare for women. That was Sinead Williams from Lawyers for Choice. The Eighth Amendment doesn't just regulate how Irish doctors deal with patients seeking an abortion, but also what treatment they can offer to any pregnant woman. There have been situations where there have been young women with cancer, either a new diagnosis and have a pregnancy who were more or less advised to defer their treatment until after term. Or there have been women who have children, have cancer realise they're pregnant and are advised to defer the rest of their treatment until after term. 
in the case of patients with cancer, some of them are, you know, some treatments can be accessed while you're pregnant, but you're obviously restricted in what you can get. So a woman could have certain types of chemotherapy from the second trimester, can have surgery. In the case of breast cancer, a lot of those women would have radiotherapy as well, which is completely restricted in pregnancy. And that increases your five-year survival rate but it's not, I suppose, necessarily something that is an immediate threat to your life. You fall somewhere in between these lines. Every treatment that you want to access is restricted. Being pregnant also removes the need to gain a woman's consent for some medical procedures. If you're in the NHS and let's say you're carrying a pregnancy and you don't want a C-section or a blood transfusion or these kind of things, let's say it gets to a point where something isn't going quite right and the medical advice is you should go for a c-section or you should get a blood transfusion or you should get this in the nhs you need the patient's consent especially if it's around labor and if the patient doesn't want a c-section or doesn't want a blood transfusion that's respected in the hse however uh, there's a clause to say that you can actually override that you can give if it's in the best interests of the unborn fetus that you can override that and you can go to c-section because it's something where a woman isn't fully compass mentis around peripartum okay so you're a woman in ireland in need of an abortion what are your options firstly you can travel off the island as of 1995 in the republic of ireland it's not illegal to travel that's mara clark founder of the abortion support network Abortion Support Network is an abortion fund. We provide information on the least expensive way to travel over and obtain an abortion. We give money towards the 400 to 2,000 pound it costs to travel and access an abortion. And when needed, we provide accommodation in volunteer homes. And we do this for people resident in the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the Isle of Man, and also the Channel Islands for people who are over 12 weeks. The question isn't why did we set this up, but why in 2009, when we started, were women forced to leave their jurisdiction to access health care? Study after study after study shows that making abortion against the law doesn't stop it or even reduce it. It just pushes it underground. Or um, what we like to say is making abortion against the law means that when faced with an unplanned or unwanted or non-viable pregnancy, those with money have options and those without money either have babies they don't want or they take dangerous steps to self-terminate. And the things people have told us that they have tried to do before finding our number would actually turn your hair gray. Every year, the Department of Health publishes the number of people who gave a foreign address, well, foreign in quotes, including Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, who give a non-England or Wales address, and they give that number And that number has been going down for 10 years. Surprisingly, that's exactly the number of years that you've been able to access early medical abortion pills on the internet. Hmm. Hmm. So we have always said that that number is underrepresented, however, because that's only the number of people who give an Irish address or an Isle of Man address. It's about 4,000 a year that the Department of Health says. We say those numbers are underrepresented because it doesn't count the numbers who give a friend's or a family member's or a bed and breakfast address. It doesn't count the ones who take safe but illegal early medical abortion pills at home. And also, now that Ireland is a little more um, cosmopolitan than it used to be, a lot of people living there are from other parts of Europe. So they don't come to England for abortions. They go home. 
So those numbers are really underrepresented. Now, our numbers, while the numbers of women traveling over, the official numbers have gone down for 10 years, our numbers have gone up. You know, so our first full year of operation, we heard from 89 people, and that was in 2010. And last year, we heard from 1,009. So, get on a plane. That's option one. Option two, illegally procure yourself some abortion pills over the internet. The conservative estimate is 2,000 a year, women in Ireland and Northern Ireland accessing these pills online. They risk criminal prosecution for taking pills that are on the World Health Organization's safe medicines list, essential medicines list, but will get you a jail sentence if you're, if you're caught with them in Ireland or Northern Ireland. Several cases have now been up before prosecution. The one that's currently still going through now is a mother of a teenage girl and the mother ordered the pills for her daughter, who was a minor at that time, under the age of consent. And the mother has been charged with procuring poisonous substance or something along those lines. So basically, by prosecuting women for taking these pills, which, again, on the World Health Organization's essential medicines list, even outside of clinical setting... What they're doing is saying, hey, if you don't have the money to get to England or if you can't go to England because you don't have somebody to watch your five kids or your ailing grandmother or you don't have a, a passport or whatever, whatever the reason it is that you can't leave your country for 18 hours to get medical care, don't take these pills that are safe. Instead, why don't you go on the Internet and, uh, and see what you can do instead or have a baby that you don't want? That case Mara's talking about happened in Northern Ireland. Yeah. That's right, the Northern Ireland that's part of the UK, because women aren't allowed to have abortions there either. The mother in question acquired pills for her 15-year-old daughter without realising that doing so is illegal. Last year, she faced two charges of unlawfully procuring poison with intent to procure a miscarriage, contrary to the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. That's 10 years in prison she's facing. The UK's 1967 Abortion Act was never extended to Northern Ireland, and abortion remains illegal in all but the most extreme circumstances. Add to that, Northern Ireland has the harshest criminal penalty for abortion anywhere in Europe, meaning that in theory, life imprisonment can be doled out to a woman undergoing an unlawful abortion. Thanks to that, an estimated 2,000 women travel from Northern Ireland to English hospitals and clinics every year for abortions. As of last year... Thanks to legislation introducing a private member's bill by Labour MP Stella Creasy, abortions are now available free to Northern Irish women on the NHS. You know, their NHS. And by free, there is still the expense of travel to be covered. Although there is, of course, a third option. Cue hollow laughter. You have a baby. It's impossible to quantify how many women in Ireland are forced to give birth to babies they didn't want or couldn't afford. My name is Claire Hennessy. I'm a writer, editor and creative writing facilitator based in Dublin. I think a lot of the time when we think about abortion, we do kind of imagine that it is mostly the silly teenage girls that let themselves get into that situation. And of course, it's not, you know, it's very often sort of grown women. It's very often women who are already mothers who know how difficult it is to, to raise a child, who have a very clear understanding of everything that goes with it. And they know that, you know, it is possible for them to, I mean, as, as Catelyn Ran says in, in How to Be a Woman, you know, she kind of talks about she knows that she can be a good mother to two kids, but that she would not be able to do that for, for a third. And I think that's, you know, something really important to remember. It's true to say, however, that some of these women are young, girls even, 
We met up with comedian Gronya Maguire to find out how motherhood is presented to young women in Ireland. There's a real attitude still. There's very few options, especially if you're a girl, if a teenage girl, working class background, you're not going to go to university. If you get pregnant, there's a general sense of this will be the making of you. You're going to be a mother, that's going to calm you down, that's going to be your identity. I saw it so much in the town that I'm from, people getting pregnant very, very young and not going through with the pregnancy is not an option. It's almost like a sense of pride. You're going to look after this baby. Like a woman's life doesn't really have that much value. What else are you going to do with your life? There's no sense of what that person could have achieved. That's what I find really heartbreaking is that I see young girls. It's like a tiny little window of possibility they have and then it's gone. And then that's just stuck there. And I think it is very much like a working class thing because even like the physical thing about going to England, what teenage girl, especially from a working class background, has the confidence to be like, no, my life has value in itself. And not only am I going to terminate the pregnancy, which is a big taboo, but I'm going to find an abortion clinic in England. I'm going to sort out my passport. I'm going to pay for the flights. If You know, people don't have a lot of faith in you anyway. I don't think a lot of women have that tenacity, you know, to fight for something different. But women forced into motherhood get loads of support, right? Let's say, uh, you know, a woman gets pregnant. If the father looks after the child, he is the most amazing person. Oh, my God. God, what an amazing young man. He heard so much. Like he stood by her and he looks after the baby and you see him around the town. Oh my God. But most of the times, there's not, don't think there's a big taboo if he doesn't. I don't think there's much taboo to being a single mother as maybe there was about 20 years ago. I think maybe the community usually rallies around her, her family really rallies around her, even lots of like grannies acting as second mothers. But what's interesting is in Ireland, we are healthcare, you have to pay, mm. unless you've got a, a medical card, which is if you're on the dole, you get it. But we don't have our social services is really, really, really badly funded. So the woman will probably have support in her community, but she won't have that much support from the state. That's what's so ironic about this whole thing. Ireland wants to protect the child. When and it's in utero once the child is born then there's not that much state support she's not wrong one in four children in ireland lives in a lone parent family which is one of the highest rates in europe one family a national organization for single parents in the republic states that lone parents are almost 3.5 times as likely to be at risk of poverty compared to households with two parents there's also this I was at a talk last year and Anne Fruity of BPAS was there and she said she has seen Irish women in clinics who seem to have changed their minds and no longer want to proceed with the abortion. But when they're asked, are you sure you want to do this? Or they say, you know, I've spent all this time and money to get here and it's been so hard to travel that they go ahead with it. That was Sinead Williams from Lawyers for Choice talking about women who might have changed their minds about having an abortion but go through with it because they've already gone through so much to get one that's heartbreaking right we emailed claire murphy of the british pregnancy advisory service probably better known by its acronym bpas to ask whether there are women who have abortions because they weren't able to speak to anyone about their options at home before they traveled or they know if they change their mind in the clinic there's no way of coming back again yeah she says there may well be Women resident in England, Wales and Scotland are often, although of course not always, able to talk to their family, their friends, their partner or have a conversation with a trusted GP, a nurse, a health visitor before making a decision. Once they get to BPAS, there's more opportunity to talk things through. Claire says about one in five women who go to BPAS don't proceed to an abortion, or at least not there. 
Women in Ireland, Northern Ireland and the Isle of Man, sometimes don't have anyone at all to talk to. They can't visit their GP to discuss options. Often, arriving at B-Pass is the first opportunity these women have had to talk about what's happening, what they want, why they want it. Some head home and continue the pregnancy. And very occasionally, says Claire, there may be women who, if they knew they could go home, have a bit more time, then come back again, might well do that and make a different decision. The emotional and physical logistics involved in travel can influence the decision. The Eighth Amendment, says Claire, denies women choice at every level. It denies them the ability to end a pregnancy at home, but it also denies them the space to think and talk about what it is they really want, which in some cases may actually be to continue the pregnancy. All of which has probably got you wondering, what the fuck, Island? Why are you treating your women like this? We went to meet Mairead Emwright, a senior lecturer at Birmingham Law School, specialising in feminist legal studies, law and religion, to find out if we should be laying the blame for this at the door of the church or the patriarchy. Turns out, a bit of both. Ireland has a particular history with the Catholic Church. Lots of countries have particular histories with the Catholic Church. Ireland's history, I suppose, is complex. Ireland is a very new country. Right, We're not even at the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the independent state. We had a revolution in which women were very prominent and often very transgressive women, right? Like queer women, women who refused to get married, women who had abortion. And in the aftermath of independence, the state invested a tremendous amount of energy into controlling women and into controlling indeed those women who were forced out of public life, out of the civil service and so on. The first laws the state passed when it had so little control over anything were laws about cinema and dancing and access to alcohol and access to music. As things go on, the state, because it has so few resources of its own, it starts to rely very heavily on the Catholic Church for provision of varying, let's say, social services, which includes, of course, healthcare, but also includes the carceral state, the, the confining state. Now, that's not unique to Ireland. You know, I'm talking about the mother and baby homes, control of unmarried women, control of sex workers, the Magdalene laundries, and so on. I teach at the University of Birmingham, and I could take you on a walk around that neighbourhood, and I could point out the mother and baby homes, the institutions for the care of friendless girls, the emigration homes that were used to export the children of unmarried mothers to Australia and Canada, all of these things also happened here. Right? We did not, as they say in Ireland, lick it off the stones. Right? This is a, this is a Catholic phenomenon, but it is, it is also a post-colonial phenomenon, which you can observe in Canada, in Australia and in other places within the British Empire. What's odd about Ireland, I suppose, is that we hung on to it long after it had gone stale. When did Ireland criminalise access to abortion? It did it before the Catholic Church had a problem with it in 1861 as part of the Offences Against the Person Act, which is colonial legislation, which you will actually find the remnants of throughout Africa. You'll find the remnants of it in South Asia. It's not a uniquely Catholic phenomenon. What's going on is that in order to justify this treatment of women, you need something, some kind of discourse, to legitimate your approach. And certainly Catholicism partly performs that role. Magdalene laundries are another aspect of Irish history and also British and American history that you're going to hear mentions of. The first Magdalene laundry in Ireland opened its doors in the 1760s, advertised as a charitable safe place of guidance and good cheer. Mostly run by Catholic nuns and staffed by unpaid inmates, what started out as a place to rehabilitate prostitutes, or as they were euphemistically termed, fallen women, fast became a brutal hybrid of workhouse, prison, asylum and slave pen. 
The definition of the term fallen women expanded to encompass women who had become pregnant outside of marriage, women who'd been sexually assaulted, and even women simply considered too pretty and therefore, quote, likely to fall. Physical and sexual abuse was rife. The work was backbreaking. Mortality rates were high. Of those who died, many wound up in mass graves, unrecorded, lost. In 2013, then Prime Minister Ender Kenny issued an apology for what he called Ireland's national shame. The last Magdalene laundry in Ireland closed in, wait for it, 1996. A grand-aunt of mine was sent to the Magdalene laundry in Limerick and never left, and we don't know why. Every Irish family, even people who grow up to have nice jobs, like being the senior lecturer in law of Barbara Yablowski, right, all have these things in our families. We all have the missing cousins who were adopted out. We all have the aunts that nobody spoke about for years. And I think there's a reclamation of that heritage that's really important. One of the things that makes me angry, for example, about the Magdalene laundries is the idea that there was this system for just stripping rural Irish communities and rural Irish families of their bold girls, of the women who would stand up for a bit of a life. I think that dispossession is something we're never going to really come to terms with. Since it was not necessary to obtain consent before beginning medical treatment, historically, pregnant women in Ireland have also been subjected to experimental, unnecessary and often horrific treatment. Perhaps the most notorious is the symphysiotomy. What the hell... I hear you asking, is that? It's a particular form of obstetric violence that is basically unique to Ireland. Under international human rights law, arguably, symphysiotomy is a form of torture. Symphysiotomy is still done as an emergency procedure today. Sometimes it's very difficult uh, for the baby to be born, often, for example, if a shoulder is jammed up against part of the pelvis. And in this country, at this moment in time, there are a number of different manoeuvres that you perform, and then as an absolute last resort, you may sever the ligament at the front of the pelvis in order to create a tiny bit more room in order to enable the baby to be born. In Ireland, that same procedure was elaborated upon and developed by a small number of Catholic doctors in an effort to create an alternative to caesarean section. So women had their pelvises severed because, and this is very well documented, some doctors believed they could perform what were called prophylactic symphysiotomy, so they could create a kind of a permanent widening of women's pelvises. And this was important because they felt that if a woman had one caesarean section, she would only be able to have so many, and maybe she would turn to contraception, which at the time was illegal, you know, illegal until uh, 1980, effectively. Or she would use other methods to stop to stop having babies. And so they were trying to develop an obstetric operation that would enable women to continue to have very large families. Now, what the connection is between C-section and contraception is not entirely clear. You know, it's quite common in, in, in many countries where sterilisation is frowned upon to have a sterilisation done in the immediate aftermath of cesarean section. So perhaps that's what they were worried about. It's not entirely clear. This is one example of a very severe form of, of control of women's reproductive health, which has come to light in the last number of years. The support group Survivors of Symphysiotomy believes that 1,500 women were given symphysiotomies or pubiotomies without their consent and often without even an explanation of what was about to happen to them. In 2014, Marie O'Connor, the group's chairperson, told the UN Human Rights Committee that women were operated on wide awake and often screaming and added that those who resisted were physically restrained. The last such operation was carried out in 1984. The group says there are around 300 Irish women alive today suffering the ongoing effects of these operations, including chronic pain, 
problems walking and incontinence. In 2016, the HSE paid compensation of between €50,000 and €150,000 to 399 victims, five of whom died before they were able to claim the money. This whole situation has been exacerbated by the fact that for so many years, until 1980 in fact, contraception was illegal in Ireland. Even then it was still severely restricted. As we discovered, everyone's got a funny story about contraception. My name is Sheena Cahill. I'm the Vice President for Equality and Citizenship and Deputy President of the Union of Students in Ireland. So I'm also National Chair of Students for Choice as part of the Union of Students in Ireland. My granny has told me stories about her and like some of her friends getting the brown envelope from England with condoms in them before contraception was legalised. Friends of theirs and sisters of theirs who travelled to the UK to work, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, sent home these like illegal brown envelope packages. Here's Kate O'Connell TD, Member of Parliament, who you'll be hearing much more from. I'm a pharmacist. My mother-in-law is a, almost an 80-year-old pharmacist. She roars laughing about the condoms being in the safe and being monitored closer than morphine. She, <laughs> But that is the case. And that if you were married, that you had to go to your doctor and make an argument for why you wanted to have sex and possibly not have a child out of it. And there's very, very interesting data about how in Ireland, um, and I remember this, um, and I'm 38 now, where women were being prescribed the contraceptive pill only as a menstrual cycle regulator. And Irish women, statistically, therefore, had the most irregular menstrual cycles of anybody else in the world. And this is, this is documented and, and the figures are there. So we were still pretending we weren't having sex. You might be mistaken for thinking that the liberalisation of the law on contraception meant things were looking up for women in the Republic. Here's Maraid to explain why you'd be wrong. One of the reasons why the pro-life amendment campaign pushed for the 1983 amendment was they were worried. In Ireland, we say the 70s were our 60s, so the 70s was when the women's movement got going. In 1973, the Supreme Court found that married couples' right to marital privacy encompassed the right to use contraception. And so the pro-life amendment campaign thought that that case, McGee, was just like a case in the United States called Griswold, which had recognised the same right. And Griswold in the United States was followed by Rowan Wade. And so the pro-life amendment campaign said, you have McGee, the next thing you have an Irish Rowan Wade. They were against access to abortion. And so even though abortion was illegal under the 1861 Act in Ireland at the time, they thought that they would put a stop to future development of the Constitution. And it's so interesting because at the end of this period of enormous progress for women, contraception had finally been legalised just three years earlier. We joined the EU, Equal Pay, the Women's Liberation Movement, all of that kind of thing. The 1983 amendment is backlash. Nell McCafferty calls it something like the pig-ignorant slurry of woman-hating that temporarily did us down. I think I'm quoting that properly. And the, the feminist movement at the time had only just started in Ireland to talk about a right to choose and didn't have the funding and the heft of the Catholic Church. The pro-life amendment campaign, you know, when I talk about the, the respectability of that conservative Catholicism, you had Professor John Bonner, who was a leading obstetrician and at one point president of the, the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. You had Professor William Binchy, who was a recently retired professor of law at Trinity College Dublin. You had the Knights of Columbanus, who's... Um, job it is to ensure conservative Catholic presence in public life. They used that might and they used I guess 
the deference and tolerance that was shown to them at a time of tremendous political instability the two main political parties were having trouble forming stable government they, they used that to kind of put women back in their place. I was born at the end of 1982 so I am one of the last babies in Ireland to be born without the protection of the 1983 amendment. Women my age, before they were born it was already said to them, you don't get full constitutional personhood. Something we heard come up quite a lot is a culture of silence in Ireland that meant sex wasn't really spoken about. Make something taboo and it starts to feel shameful, as one teacher, who has to remain anonymous, told us. It was religious. Like, we got days off for holy days when I was at school. You know, the Holy Communion, I remember being taken out of class and you were marched out of class for weeks to go down to the church to practice for Holy Communion and confirmation. This was a big deal. It was also school run by nuns, you know, and there was a nun as a principal and they were nun teachers and that. And then my mother sent me to a private girls' school also run by nuns. But I have to say, quite progressive nuns. Like, But there was never any mention of feminism. There was never any mention of equality. There was work hard, get your education, go to college. But there was never any notion of a woman in the world. But it was never also mentioned in my own house and my own mother. And I would have classed my mother as highly intelligent, very, very liberal, but she never really mentioned feminism. She says to say things like, don't get pregnant and kind of, you know, wreck it for yourself. Then you associate sex with shame, you associate it with being trapped, you associate anything like that with a problem. Nobody talked about sex around here. Nobody talked about decent education about sex or sex is something being other than shameful. Like in school, when we used to leave from third year upwards and we left for summer holidays, our PE teacher would say to us, don't get pregnant over the summer. I think you're kind of overestimating my social life. And when I look back, there was so much silence about anything that really mattered. We were taught that our bodies and sex was quite shameful. And it was all done very latently. There was nobody standing up at the front of the class with a big sign saying, today's topic is shame. Nobody says that. But it's all done very latently and so much silence. Like, just so much silence. Nobody, you know, I learned from periods in the schoolyard. We learned from sex in the schoolyard. My mother, God bless her. She just didn't want to talk about it. And it's not because she wasn't able to, but it's the way it was. She also mentioned that sex education was interesting. Teaching on sex in this country has not been good. I think we're improving. I think we're like, when I think of my own sex education at school, like there was a video with a nun in it. Is there such a thing as a sexy nun? Like, sound of music. <laughs> she was doing the whole two raindrops joining together in the window of life, all these lovely metaphors. It seems very clear to us that something needs to happen. So perhaps the question is, why is it happening now? As ever, Maraid has the answer. In the aftermath of Savita Halepanavar's case, we've had a number of other very difficult cases come into the public domain. But at the same time, we've had women coming out to tell their stories, some of which are kind of exceptional, right? They're not the kind of thing that happens regularly to women that get pregnant, but others of which are just ordinary abortion stories. People who came to England often or went to the Netherlands for a legal termination because they couldn't be pregnant at that particular moment in time, or people who have imported abortion pills illegally. So in the last five years, there's just been this groundswell of storytelling and not like confessional storytelling not like I'm really sorry I had an abortion but this kind of empowered politicising storytelling of Ireland did this to me Ireland made me do this and it was not as it should have been and I was not cared for as I should have been. It is this really transformative political moment. Women who I've known my whole life who would not be politicised about anything or I've never heard them utter a political word are out interested in this. So you have all of these things coming together. You have these historical inquiries into gender-based, uh, institutional gender-based violence. You have the repeal campaign. A couple of years ago you had 2016, so the 100th anniversary of the Rising. And you have all of this, like 
not just academic feminist critique, vernacular feminist critique in art, on the streets, in law, in ordinary conversations with people in the media, kind of asking, like, what is the state for women? The Paddy Jackson uh, trial, the, 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 the rape trial in Belfast mass marches all over Ireland. There is that really amazing sense that actually Irish women just just are not interested in putting up with this stuff anymore. We'll be back with part two tomorrow in which we go out onto the streets of Dublin to talk about the campaign, the chance of success and what the future might hold for other parts of the world where women's access to safe reproductive healthcare is also under threat. If you've heard this and you're wondering what you can do to help, first up, got a vote? Use it. Vote yes. And encourage everyone around you to do the same. Call your family members, your friends, your boyfriends and explain why it's so important. You can find out more information about how to go home to vote if you're living outside of Ireland at the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign site, hometovote.com. It's too late to register to vote now, so if you're not registered, you're not Irish, or you've been living outside Ireland for the last 18 months, you can't vote. But you can still help. Donate to the Together for Yes campaign to help them spread the word by visiting www.togetherforyes.ie. Get involved in your local group, and again, the Home to Vote website has more info on this. Chip a fiver or more to the Abortion Support Network to help it continue its vital work. You can do that at www.asn.org.uk. And finally, contact your local political representative and ask them what they're doing to advance women's rights. Standard Issue would like to thank Aoife McArdle, Kate O'Connell, Agnes Johnson, Anna McHugh, Claire Hennessy, Mairead Emwright, Mara Clark, Sinead Williams, Sheena Carhill, Gronya Maguire, Ashlyn Cronin, Iverna McGowan, and Stephanie Kelsey. You have, of course, been listening to the Standard Issue team, Mickey Noonan, Hannah Dunleavy and Jen Offord. Standard Issue for all women.